The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Applying Evidence to Practice in Postpartum Depression, Expert Guidance on Integrating Therapeutic Innovations and Shared Decision-Making Strategies to Optimize Patient Care, featuring Dr. Christina M. Deligenitis from Zucker Hillside Hospital at Northwell Health in New York. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HYR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Christina Delaginitas, and I'm the Director of Women's Behavioral Health at the Zucker Hillside Hospital at Northwell Health in New York City. I'm a perinatal psychiatrist, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for this educational activity named Applying Evidence to Practice in Postpartum Depression. So let's get started. As you know, perinatal depression is one of the most common medical complications during and after pregnancy and may arise de novo in the postpartum period or during pregnancy. Recent CDC estimates indicate that postpartum depression or PPD symptoms may occur in over 13% of all live births in the U.S. And we know that women with postpartum depression are 27 to 46 times more likely to experience postpartum depression during subsequent pregnancies. 70% of women with a pre-existing mood disorder who discontinue their antidepressant in pregnancy will experience a relapse of major depression. There are numerous risk factors for postpartum depression, and this slide outlines many of the most common ones. Some of them include depression or anxiety during pregnancy, low levels of social support, also family history of PPD, gestational diabetes, and stressful life events. So these are important factors to elicit from patients to try to identify their risk factors. We know there are many negative consequences of untreated postpartum depression. Unfortunately, untreated PPD increases the risk for many maternal behaviors. Some of those are included here. So addictive behaviors, relationship difficulties, an elevated risk for suicide, and also it changes mom's uh, interaction uh, with her, her children. And so their parenting behaviors are impacted. We see that depressed mothers are less likely to talk or engage or interact with their babies. Um, they can use car seats less often and sometimes will not bring in their children for routine scheduled vaccinations or well child checks. We also know that untreated PPD can increase the risk for several problems that can develop in children who've been exposed to postpartum depression. These are listed here. They can include sleep problems, slower language development, behavioral issues, and then also those children can be at increased risk for developing psychiatric issues later as children, adolescents, or adults. So a common question um, that I've encountered in, in my colleagues in OBGYN and other primary care physicians is how to best distinguish the difference between baby blues and postpartum depression. And so we've created this table to better differentiate and have a resource um, to help you differentiate the two. Because one, baby blues does not require clinical intervention, but postpartum depression does. And so baby blues is really common in about 85% of new mothers. It occurs pretty close after delivery. So within a few days after delivery, uh, especially by day four or day five. Uh, the duration, you know, the symptoms can kind of come and go, um, but they, they are usually all gone by two weeks after delivery. That's a real defining feature. And the symptoms that women report, such as their mood changing, um, some tearfulness, anxiety, irritability, they're really mild and they do not impair functioning. And that's a really another very clear distinguishing feature from postpartum depression. Um, again, this resolves spontaneously, and it's, it's not related to a woman's psychiatric history and not predictive of future issues. Now, in contrast, postpartum depression is identified or diagnosable in 13% of women. Um, the symptoms typically emerge during third trimester of pregnancy and two to three months postpartum. The symptoms last longer than two weeks. The symptoms are daily, and if untreated, can last up to three years. 
Um, this is a clinical diagnosis of major depressive disorder, and we're going to discuss that on the next slide. Uh, the functioning is impaired from the depressive symptoms. So again, really important to ask about mom's functioning at home. And this requires treatment. Um, Postpartum depression is more common in women with a history of depression, of major depression or bipolar disorder, and it predicts future episodes as well. So here are those diagnostic criteria. Um, the American Psychiatric Association diagnosis is major depressive disorder with peripartum onset. And this really recognizes the, the research that indicates that for many women, depression can begin antenatally or during pregnancy. And so these are the symptoms that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. Uh, five or more of those symptoms need to be present um, nearly every day during the same two-week period and really present a change from previous functioning. Again, that functional impairment. Um, one of the symptoms must be either depressed mood or uh, reduction in interest or pleasure. And you can see the remainder of those, um, including change in weight or appetite. Now, Yes, postpartum women are having changes in their weight, but their appetite is severely, usually depressed. Um, women need reminders to eat, um, especially uh, nursing women uh, uh, struggle to eat or stay hydrated uh, to produce breast milk. We see really severe insomnia affecting their ability to fall asleep, stay asleep, or uh, wake up at the right time. Um, and that's outside of the normal perturbations of, of feeding Q2 hours um, for, for breastfeeding. Uh, we often see more of agitation or irritability than psychomotor retardation, but it can vary. Uh, the fatigue is very different than the fatigue we see in a healthy postpartum woman who obviously has sleep impaired um, by caring for their newborn. And then we see feelings of worthlessness or inappropriate guilt um, difficulty with concentration, and we can uh, have women who report suicidal ideation um, as well. Now, you know, the importance of detecting and, and managing postpartum depression from the role of an OBGYN, um, one of the things that is striking is that, you know, the recent studies show that approximately one-third of all the physician visits for women of reproductive age are with their OBGYN physician. And many women report that their OB-GYN is their only source of primary care or routine health care. Women with symptoms of postpartum depression also identify OBGYN providers and their clinics as their preferred provider for mental health care. ACOG recommends that OBGYNs and other obstetric care providers should initiate screening, and they should screen patients at least once in pregnancy, and also um, to use a standardized validated tool to identify those symptoms. Also, to complete a full assessment of mood and emotional well-being, including screening for postpartum depression and anxiety with a validated instrument during that comprehensive postpartum visit for each patient, which usually occurs between four and 12 weeks after delivery. OBGYNs should be prepared to initiate medical therapy, refer patients to appropriate behavioral health resources when indicated or both. And it's important, obviously, that systems are in place to ensure that women are able to follow up for diagnosis and treatment. Now, one of the more common assessment tools is the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, or EPDS. And this is the most common tool that we see used um, for perinatal women. Now, it's a 10 item self-report. It's been validated in both pregnancy and postpartum. So um, don't get hung up with the, the, the uh, title that it's only for, for postpartum use. This has been validated in pregnancy and it's available in more than 50 languages. Um, it considers both depressive and anxiety symptoms, which is really critical because they're often comorbid. It also focuses on mood-related symptoms rather than the somatic symptoms that can be present, such as lack of sleep or fatigue. A cutoff score of 12 has fairly good sensitivity and specificity, ranging from 80 to 90%.
And the final item on question 10 assesses suicidal ideation or self-harm, and that should be given consideration independent of the total score. This EPDS has been found to be more accurate at identifying women with and without postpartum depression than the more common PHQ-9 or the postpartum depression screening scale. Now, a little bit more on this EPDS assessment tool. A recent review that included um, several uh, randomized trials of more than 6,500 women found a lower prevalence of PPD at follow-up for those screened four to eight weeks after delivery. And so if postpartum depression was diagnosed, improvement or remission of symptoms at follow-up was greater in patients who were screened in those than in those who were not screened. However, again, this is a screening assessment tool. It's not diagnostic. And so we know that women with elevated scores can also be suffering from bipolar disorder or certain anxiety disorders. Um, and it may not be unipolar depression or postpartum depression. In fact, almost one quarter of women who have an elevated score on the EPDS may actually have bipolar disorder. So that clinical distinction is really important. We're gonna go into kind of how do you figure that out with, with just some self-report tools. And so we'll transition now to the toolkit for OBGYNs. Um, this toolkit was created to really uh, help clinicians with screening and diagnosis of postpartum depression, management of postpartum depression, and then overcoming treatment barriers through shared decision-making. And so you can see in this toolkit that there's um, uh, you know, material from things we've covered already, but now uh, really in a concise way allows you to have a lot of information at your fingertips very briefly. And so here we have uh, for part one, the screening and diagnosis, again, those risk factors, negative consequences, the diagnostic criteria, how to do that differentiation with baby blues and PPD. Um, here we have in our toolkit, the EPDS. Um, and so again, it's that self-report um, uh, tool, again, validated in both pregnancy and the postpartum. Um, you know, the tools that are downloadable um, have all the instructions for the patient. We really recommend that the patient administers it to herself rather than um, a social worker or nurse um, asking the questions. And so um, women are, are somewhat more likely to answer honestly if they're um, able to write down the response. Um, and you can do this with an iPad or some sort of tablet, or you can use paper. Um, and so again, each item is scored zero to three. Um, and the scoring here, there are a couple of questions that are reverse scored so that um, uh, you wanna be aware of that because then the scoring changes. So again, that cutoff of 12 has fairly good sensitivities and specificities. Um, and a positive um, score would lead us to um, uh, doing additional interviewing. Um, obviously, we're also always paying attention to number 10, the thought of harming myself has occurred to me. And one clarifying thing on this question is that um, sometimes women misinterpret this question. Um, sometimes it's not intentionally harming myself, but accidentally harming myself. And so sometimes um, women will say, well, I, I have this anxiety in the winter, you know, of falling on ice and falling on my belly, or when I, you know, I'm going downstairs, I have this, you know, these thoughts that, oh my gosh, what if I slipped in and got hurt? That's not what we're asking about. So sometimes the simple question of, you know, what were you thinking of when you checked off, you know, yes, quite often, you know, give me you know, some examples, just keeping it very open so that you can try to understand if it's really intentional self-harm or accidental self-harm. We've seen that quite a bit. Um, and the next tool, again, focusing on that question 10. So here we really want to ask about, um, again, in the past two weeks, um, what are your thoughts? What, what have those thoughts been? Um, so you can elicit in a very open way. Have you ever attempted to hurt yourself in the past? And have you thought about how you could harm yourself? So for any plans and any intent, um, and so we think of, you know, the risk assessments as low, medium, and high. And, you know, 
it, it's not just how she's responding on this questionnaire, but it's the context of the patient, right? And so if we have a woman who's reporting some fleeting thoughts that, um, you know, yeah, um, I had these thoughts of just maybe it'd be better if I just didn't wake up or I just want to escape. So those are low risk thoughts as long as they have no current plan or intent uh, to harm themselves. But again, that's, you know, in context that the patient herself is at low risk. So if she doesn't have any history of suicide attempt or psychiatric hospitalizations in the past. Um, and she doesn't have a history of bipolar disorder. So it, it's in that context that you have to kind of put the two together. And in this low risk case, then you really want to provide support, treatment options, arrange follow up, um, and identify those resources and making sure that uh, the woman connects with them. For more moderate risk where there are suicidal thoughts there, um, so yes, I, you know, I've had, um, thoughts of, of wanting to die and, um, but you know, I don't want to die and, um, uh, you know, I don't have any immediate plan, but I keep having the thoughts that I'd be better off dead and, and, you know, maybe my family would be better off without me. Um, then it starts to get, especially if the frequency we ask about, you know, how often are the thoughts coming and um, how hard are the thoughts to get out of your mind, right? So the more stubborn the thoughts are, that increases the risk. And again, this is a fluid, low, medium risk, you know, sort of assessment. Um, and so here really, we really need to discuss treatment options, reassessing risk, um, uh, sooner than later within the week, um, or sooner having a contingency and plan in case, um, uh, there, you know, the patient develops a plan, um, uh, or, or means, um, for suicide. And then for high risk, um, again, this really differs where, you know, the patient's reporting, um, I want to die and, you know, after I leave this appointment, um, I may step in front of a bus, um, or I'm having thoughts that when in my car, I think I'm just going to drive into oncoming traffic, or I, you know, I have a plan of overdosing on, you know, my, my pills that I got from the hospital. And so here they're very specific and they have the means available. And in those situations, um, uh, the woman should not go home. And so they need to be escorted to the emergency room, um, whatever safety protocols you have in place um, for your practice. We know that a high percentage of women with bipolar disorder who stop their medication during pregnancy relapse very quickly after stopping the medications. And we know that women with bipolar disorder need to be treated differently than women with unipolar postpartum depression. Now, postpartum psychosis, which is often um, part of bipolar disorder, now this can be either with or without mania, is a psychiatric emergency and occurs in one to two out of a thousand births. So again, for women with a history of bipolar disorder, this really raises the risk level um, and attention level that that woman needs um, for mental health care. And we know that women with comorbid conditions are more likely to have self-harm ideation. And so one way to tease this out is that for every woman with a positive EPDS screen to then administer a self-report tool called the Mood Disorder Questionnaire. This is also freely available and downloadable from the internet. It's a self-report, asks a series of questions if there's ever been a time in their life when they weren't their usual self and maybe experienced these symptoms. And the woman just checks off yes or no. And then really, I find I, I still have to ask, even though it does say, um, have several of these ever happened during the same period of time? And we're looking for distinct periods of time, right? So the irritability, the grandiosity, not needing to sleep. So feeling rested with like two or three hours of sleep, um, really having so much energy, um, you know, when they speak, others can't interrupt them. Um, very flighty behavior, not being able to focus on anything or complete things or risky behaviors. Um, when these coincide like over the same week uh, or a few days and then then go away, this is not, you know, continued um, uh, risky behavior or irritability, but rather um, uh, punctuated periods of these behaviors that are all linked together 
That is what we're looking for, for either a hypomanic or manic episode that would be part of bipolar disorder. And so, um, so that's a way of utilizing this tool. And again, so quick for women to fill out. It's, it's less than a minute. Um, and when it's all, you know, all knows, you're much reassured that you're dealing with unipolar postpartum depression and can treat with, um, standard of care, which we're going to go over. As I noted, um, many women can have uh, anxious thoughts and anxious ruminations um, after delivery. And it sometimes um, can be confusing of whether uh, those anxious thoughts are uh, uh, due to an anxiety disorder or if they could potentially be due to more of a um, a, a concerning um, condition of either psychosis um, or other severe mental illness. And so the, the intrusive thoughts that women can, um, can present with, again, to differentiate from depression, anxiety, or OCD, or a psychotic or homicidal um, uh, condition can be very distressing to women. These thoughts could be thoughts of harming their baby, thoughts of drowning the baby, thoughts of throwing the baby out the window, um, putting the baby in a microwave. They're incredibly distressing to women with anxiety. So here on the left, you'll see that women have good insight. They realize these thoughts are outside of their head and um, are very distressing to them. And they're taking precautions to keep that baby safe. Um, they don't have psychotic symptoms. They don't have hallucinations or unusual beliefs. And again, they're very anxious. For those women, those symptoms are more due to anxiety. And, and the mom's not at risk of harming the baby. But alternatively, if a mom has similar thoughts, but doesn't have good insight, or there's some part of her that would like to actually um, complete the thought or complete the act, um, then it, then we think it, it's more psychotic and um, might be a delusional belief. And so for those women, that again is a psychiatric emergency and they need to, to see psychiatric care immediately because the baby could be at, at risk. Now, again, um, just as a review, um, you know, for women with a positive screen, we want to um, dive a little bit deeper to figure out, um, uh, if, you know, is this a full depressive episode? Is it clinical depression or anxiety? Um, try to understand if they have a history or family history of psychiatric um, issues. Um, it's always prudent um, to uh, do some laboratory testing, especially for uh, to rule out postpartum thyroiditis. Um, to administer the MDQ, to monitor for uh, mania, um, also to ask about hallucinations or anxiety and some of the obsessive compulsive symptoms, which can be found in 10% of postpartum women. And then obviously to do a risk assessment um, and then to um, uh, schedule, you know, uh, either the media immediate or uh, appropriate follow-up later for those symptoms and treatment. So when to refer to a perinatal health mental specialist, um, you know, whenever there are diagnostic concerns or, you know, the woman does screen positive on that MDQ, then I think really um, uh, the woman should be uh, very swiftly uh, referred to mental health care um, to sort of figure out those diagnostic concerns and also what the, what the appropriate pharmacotherapy would be for bipolar disorder. But if there are multiple psychiatric comorbidities or um, addiction um, illnesses, um, or they've tried many treatments in the past and, and things haven't worked, or obviously any safety concerns, those would be key times to refer to a mental health uh, specialist. And we know um, that this transfer of care works best if the OBGYN has a referral network in place. And so that the clinic or practice knows, um, you know, a group of either psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, community supports that are at the ready and uh, can work with the patient and their practice. Um, ideally, the specialists will have experience in working in perinatal women. Um, and, um, and, you know, an important fact, important piece of this is that we just know that so many women that are, are handed a referral sheet and say, oh, you know, we think you may have postpartum depression, you know, please call these resources. 
um, so many of those women don't call out to, to specialists like us. And so, um, to follow up with your patient to see if they did make the call and then did they go to that first appointment? Are they engaging in psychiatric care is so important. And now it's your turn to practice using the toolkit to find information you need when screening a patient for postpartum depression. We're going to give you a question and you will have to find the answer in the tool. So let's try it. You have to read the question, look at the tool, and go ahead and find the answer. And so let us begin now with module two, where we're going to explore current and emerging treatment options for postpartum depression. So for all women, including women with postpartum depression, we really do want to um, encourage self-care, uh, sleep protection, exercise, uh, so psychosocial support strategies, and manage social stressors, medical conditions, any psychiatric comorbidities for women with postpartum depression. So for all women, no matter the severity. For those with more moderate symptoms of postpartum depression, we certainly want to um, uh, start discussing psychological treatments. These are evidence-based treatments based on randomized clinical controlled trials for cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal therapy. Um, and then also for moderate PPD, often antidepressants are indicated uh, if there's insufficient response with psychotherapies. For severe postpartum depression, we often use both psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy together. Um, we will need to sometimes consider switching the antidepressant or augmenting the antidepressant if the woman doesn't have a full remission of the depression with the single antidepressant. And then for women with severe PPD that's sometimes complicated with other symptoms such as catatonia or refusal to eat, um, severe weight loss, um, and other symptoms, then we consider uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, also for women who may need psychiatric hospitalization for suicidal ideation as well, or treatment resistance. And so there's, there's a great evidence base for psychological therapies in postpartum depression. And again, um, uh, women often prefer non-medication-based treatments for postpartum depression. Um, these, these studies looked at, um, uh, it was a meta-analysis of several studies uh, for a variety of psychotherapies for postpartum depression and showed that all of them had a positive effect size uh, in reducing PPD symptomatology. And those effect sizes range from mild to moderate to, um, to very large effect sizes um, and included studies with CBT, IPT, just general counseling, supportive counseling, and other psychological interventions. SSRIs, a type of antidepressant, have also been tested in randomized clinical controlled trials for the treatment of postpartum depression. And overall, a meta-analysis that was recently done um, showed that the effects of SSRIs um, uh, are helpful for women with postpartum depression versus placebo. Regarding breastfeeding, um, antidepressants are not usually contraindicated during breastfeeding. And I think that this is a um, uh, an area for education uh, for patients. For, and uh, because we often have so many patients who come in, well, I can't I can't take an antidepressant, I'm going to breastfeed. And, and unfortunately, we find a lot of confusion with uh, clinicians, too, in the field about the safety of uh, many antidepressants uh, in breastfeeding. And so we often you know, refer to the relative infant dose, and uh, do, the RID percentage of less than 10 is often compatible with breastfeeding. So you can see here on this slide, um, Many of our commonly used antidepressants in postpartum women are all less than 10. And so this indicates that small amounts of these antidepressants are found in breast milk, um, but are associated with low infant risk. And so we do want to have, you know, really good communication between, um, psychiatry, OBGYN, and pediatrics to make sure that we're all on the same page and that women don't get conflicting advice from her different providers. There are some limitations though, right? Um, 
for psychotherapy, we know that some women, it's just so hard to make the time commitment with everything going on. We find this even now with, with telehealth. Um, it's still challenging for women to engage in, in psychotherapies. For some, it could be, um, expensive with the co-pays or self-pay. Um, and it takes time to work. Um, for the antidepressants, um, the typical antidepressants do have, again, a slow treatment response. And so it does take time. Uh, and unfortunately, um, we just know that uh, many women don't have um, full remission of their depressive symptoms. And sometimes they stop the medications before they can fully work um, because of side effects. And those are listed here. And then for ECT, um, we still find this underutilized in this patient population, often due to stigma. And again, this is for women with very severe postpartum depression. So fortunately, we're entering a, a new era in depression treatment. Um, and it's, it's beyond the, the category of antidepressants we've used in the past. And so for this patient population, you know, I see an ideal antidepressant uh, treatment as one with rapid onset and uh, sustained response. Uh, something that's well tolerated and doesn't have uh, side effects that are going to discourage women with sticking with the treatment. Um, something that's a short course or as needed rather than chronic therapy. Women have a lot of concerns about you know, being quote unquote medicated for, you know, months and months and months or years. And so if we could develop something that is short, uh, a short course of therapy, that, that is a huge advantage for patients. Obviously, if the mechanism of action can dovetail with the pathophysiology of PPD, that would be ideal. And also compatibility with breastfeeding, because we just know there's a barrier even with, um, you know, good education. And so fortunately in 2019, Brexanolone, um, which is a novel GABA-A receptor modulator, this became the first therapeutic to be approved for the treatment of postpartum depression. Now, it's very different than, it's, it's the first in class, so it's not like other antidepressants that we can prescribe. Um, it's a neuroactive steroid. And so neuroactive steroids are made from cholesterol or steroidal precursors. They're made endogenously, so they're made in the gonads, the adrenal glands, they're made in the placenta, and they're made in the brain. And these endogenous neuroactive steroids um, include allopregnanolone, and they're rapid and potent allosteric modulators of the GABA-A receptor. And so what does that mean? Well, we have decades of data, um, uh, preclinical data um, for, for many years that have shown what a critical role these endogenous neuroactive steroids play in the stress response. And so they really regulate the HPA access during non-stress, acute and chronic stress situations. And depressive disorders, including postpartum depression, are stress-related disorders. Now, brexanolone is synthetic allopregnanolone, so they're biochemically identical. And that is um, the medication that was FDA-approved for PPD. Um, Zuranolone is an investigational neuroactive steroid. So that is not FDA approved. That is under investigation. It's an oral neuroactive steroid, really chemically similar to allopregnanolone, but not identical. And again, that's being examined in ongoing clinical trials for the treatment of major depressive disorder, so non-purple depression and postpartum depression. And so we know um, from preclinical and clinical work uh, research that um, allopregnanolone has a role in the pathophysiology of postpartum depression. So we know that across um, pregnancy that the high levels of sex steroids and neurosteroids, including allopregnanolone um, uh, and estradiol, they really shape the maternal brain. And so they shape the brain for motherhood and, um, and in response to these high levels of estrogen and progesterone that are going to sustain the pregnancy. And then after delivery, those hormones drop precipitously and the brain again changes, not exactly to pre-pregnancy level, but it changes again um, as those hormones are withdrawn. And so we know that the, um, the communication between these neuroactive steroids and the GABA-A receptors is critical in this adaptation to the hormones of pregnancy 
and the withdrawal of them after delivery. And the evidence um, uh, of research is showing that there's an inability, perhaps, of the GABA-A receptors and the neurosteroids um, to adapt to these changes, triggering changes in the brain circuit, which we see as symptoms of depression. So bruxanolone, again, the first approved and first in class, so it's completely different than any of the other antidepressants, um, was approved for PPD in the United States. Um, it is administered as a continuous IV infusion over 60 hours. So it's just a peripheral IV, um, and it's in supervised, usually inpatient or infusion center settings. Um, women can continue if they're on a, a a stable antidepressant that they've not gotten complete relief from. Um, or if you wish to start an antidepressant, that can be started after the infusion as well. Um, there is monitoring that is required with the administration of the medication. Um, a healthcare provider has to be on site to monitor the patient. Um, they have to be monitored for potential hypoxia using continuous pulse ox. Um, and be examined for sedation every two hours during um, during the non-sleep periods. Um, and then we usually start the infusions early so that um, uh, you know you can identify any excessive sedation you know during the daytime hours rather than being during the sleep uh, or bedtime hours. And if excessive sedation does occur, we just turn the infusion off, let the symptoms resolve. Um, most women just start to feel sleepy and then will uh, then you know uh, wake up again. And so then at that point you can either resume it at the same dose or you can try a lower dose as well. Um, this medication, Braxanolone, is only available through a restricted uh, program of the FDA called a REMS program. And there are many medications of many different classes that are, are um, uh, utilizing a REMS protocol. Um, we know from the clinical studies uh, that the efficacy uh, showed uh, a drastic reduction in depressive symptoms uh, in two and a half days. And so during that 60-hour infusion. Now, given the risk of excessive sedation or sudden loss of consciousness, especially if there's any pump malfunction, um, malfunction so that's why monitoring is very critical, that's why this medication carries a black box warning. And then other adverse reactions uh, can include dry mouth and flushing. Um, and so, you know, these trials... Um, which uh, we had published uh, just a couple years back, were really based on studies done in women with moderate severe postpartum depression, depression that started either in third trimester, the first four weeks after delivery. They were randomized to placebo or two different doses of um, IV brexanolone. Then we shut the pump off at 60 hours. We evaluated them. They were followed up at day seven and day 30. And as you can see here on this figure, you see a precipitous drop in depression scores. So these are um, the change from baseline. And you can see that, again, at hour 60, the pump is off, yet women stayed well all the way throughout uh, day 30, which is their last day of, of the study. Um, and then um, also two things that we look for in, in depression trials are response. So the number of women or percentage that are 50% or more better based on that depression scale or remission, meaning there's no longer clinical depression present. And so you can see um, at the 60 hour point, 75% of women with Braxanolone um, met that criteria for response versus 56 with placebo. And again, at that 60 hour, 50% no longer had clinical depression um, at that at that um, at that time point at the hour 60 versus the 26% and placebo. And so these rates are, um, you know, we haven't we don't have a head-to-head -head comparison study looking at bruxanolone versus a standard of care antidepressant. But if you were to take the meta-analyses of them, um, these are working um, uh, better than the standard of care, and they're working faster. Um, for adverse reactions, those are listed here. Again, it is a GABAergic medication, and so we do expect um, uh, this medication, similar to other GABAergic medications, to have um, a profile of um, sedation or somnolence, um, vertigo, presyncope, dizziness. Those are kind of characteristic of medications that go through the GABA receptor, even though 
neuroactive steroids use a very different GABA receptor than other GABAergic medications like benzodiazepines or, and other drugs. Um, but you also see um, some dry mouth um, and diarrhea and some flushing as well. So, um, so I love this article because it really gives some clinical pearls of, you know, who would you refer and, and, um, and who, who's kind of a, uh, a, a good patient for, um, for Brexanolone. So, so really women who have had an onset, um, as early as 20 weeks gestation, um, uh, to five weeks, uh, postpartum could be considered, uh, for Brexanolone if insurance will cover. And then, um, you know, you can still consider Patients who are still depressed after six months postpartum, really the studies have only been done in moderate to severe depression. So, um, you know, those EPDSs should be in the more moderate severe range, um, you know, in the twenties, um, would certainly be, um, uh, someone who might be eligible. And then, you know, if a woman also has a comorbid anxiety disorder, um, you know, the studies were done in women with comorbid anxiety disorders. So, so that would be fine as well. It's not, there's no reason to exclude those women. Um, however, women with bipolar disorder, psychotic illnesses, current substance use disorders, or active suicide ideation with plan and intent would not be uh, best candidates for the medication. They're ineligible for this treatment. Um, many women do benefit from continued treatment with an oral antidepressant. Um, and, um, you know, that it's not just, okay, receive the infusion and, you know, discharge the patient without follow-up. Outpatient care is really important to make sure that, um, you know, uh, if, if the woman wants to engage in psychotherapies or community supports, there are other aspects of care that um, can provide a more holistic approach. And then we do tend to reduce the doses of GABAergic medications by half just to be on safety side so that there's no um, additive effect of uh, potential sedation. And then for prior authorization, there are some key features listed here that are important, including the diagnosis, the, um, the date of delivery, the, the um, documentation of the severity, usually with you know a validated tool, um, and then if breastfeeding, most insurers want documentation that the patient will pump and dump just during the infusion period and four days after. And regarding that breastfeeding, um, the RID in breast milk 36 hours after infusion is 1% to 2%, so it's quite low. And oral bioavailability of brexanolone and allopregnanolone is also low. Now, again, we, we discussed the black box warning that's for sedation and potential sudden loss of consciousness um, and the requirement for a continuous pulse oximetry and um, the patients are accompanied during interactions with their children and that the medication is only available through a REMS program. Now, there are many ways to become certified to, to dispense Brexanolone and um, uh, you know, have the ability to monitor patients, um, to train the staff um, on prescribing, dispensing, um, establishing the procedures um, uh, for dispensing and administering uh, Brexanolone, and also to adhere to some of the the, um, the forms and programs that are required within the RAMS. So uh, there's this slide outlines those requirements for RAMS. And to gain access to the program or to become REMS certified at your institution or practice, all of the um, materials that are needed are on the Zoresa REMS website and are all downloadable. So you, unload, you uh, can enroll in the training program, the slide decks there, all of the papers and the forms, um, all the information is, is readily available from that site. Now, I did um, note earlier that um, Zoranolone was an oral neuroactive steroid. Um, it is uh, biochemically different than allopregnanolone. Um, and in, for a good reason, it's orally bioavailable where um, allopregnanolone has poor or oral bioavailability. And so Zoranolone, um, we completed this study and, and recently published it. Um, and this was done in severe postpartum depression. Women were randomized either to placebo or a 14-day oral course. So they took the capsules at night uh, for 14 nights, and we evaluated them at day 15 
and 45, we see a really similar response curve um, for the depressive symptoms with very rapid reduction of depressive symptoms um, with statistically significant and clinically impactful differences at day 15. You can also see that women stayed well all the way through day 45, but remember, they only took the oral zoranolone um, from days um, 1 through 14. And here you can see we, we always measure response and remission of depression because those are really clinically important variables of interest and, and clinically impactful for the patient that we know that um, symptoms are at least 50% better or if they're clinically remitted and don't meet criteria for major depression any longer. And so you can see that treatment with Zoranolone 30 milligram resulted in greater percentages of patients meeting response or remission compared to placebo across the study. And also, you know, I mentioned that anxiety is quite comorbid in PPD. Anxiety also responded. We had sustained improvements uh, in anxiety symptoms as measured by um, this anxiety tool. Um, and those were, those were seen across the study and follow-up periods. And again, you see a similar curve where the symptoms are, uh, that, that resolution or reduction of symptoms are stable across time. Now, for treatment emergent adverse events, zoranolone was well tolerated. Um, the most common treatment emergent AEs were somnolence, uh, headache, dizziness, upper respiratory tract infection, diarrhea, and sedation. And um, in the placebo group, some of the similar ones were there. And you can kind of compare and contrast the percentages um, to see if they were nearly similar to placebo or if they were elevated compared to placebo. Um, most of these TEAEs were mild or moderate. And, um, and currently, um, there's a phase three clinical trial called Skylark. This is testing a different dose of zoranolone. It's higher. So the, the Robin study, uh, which I just presented was tested at a 30 milligram dose. This is now testing it at a 50 milligram dose. And this is also a randomized double blind, um, phase, uh, trial. Again, this is outpatient. So it's an oral. Uh, treatment for 14 days. And so the results of these are pending um, uh, at this time. So let's head again to our practice aid. Here, you know, of our evidence-based treatment recommendations. Again, um, you know, for all women with postpartum depression, it's important to um, emphasize self-care, sleep protection, exercise, psychosocial supports, um, and really connect women with uh, community resources. So peer support groups, um, uh, you know, seminars or educational opportunities, places for women to connect with other moms um, are really important uh, for all women because it really does help to manage and, and mitigate social stressors that they're under. Um, obviously addressing, you know, um, any comorbid medical conditions during this time as well. For more moderate or severe postpartum depression, so again, when the EPDS is, is you know, not just simply a, a, a 12, but it's, you know, it's more of a 16 or 18, um, now you're getting into more moderate symptomatology. This is, this is certainly functioning and pairing um, and, you know, uh, connecting that patient with psychological interventions and hopefully evidence-based CBT or interpersonal therapy, IPT. Those have the highest level of evidence base based on RCTs of higher efficacy than supportive counseling. Um, but also making available antidepressant treatments, whether that is an SSRI um, or brexanolone. Uh, those are the main two categories of antidepressants um, uh, available. There's also SNRIs, um, and for women with more treatment resistance, tri tricyclics, but typically they'd be under the care of a psychiatrist. And then for severe postpartum depression, again, combining these um, is most often. Um, there are some women who will just have monotherapy with an antidepressant, be it a standard of care um, antidepressant, a traditional antidepressant, or brexanolone. Um, but ideally, um, we find the best responses when both are using, because they're working differently on the brain and on the brain circuit. Um, and then 
for very severe um, or treatment-resistant postpartum depression, ECT um, is uh, a, a, an important consideration. And so um, also part of this module to um, um, practice aid includes some of those slides that will, again, bring all that data into a concise way for um, discussing the, uh, the basics about brexanolone and then some of the clinical pearls about patient selection, um, which I think is really helpful. Um, also, if you're interested in um, becoming a site for um, uh, brexanolone therapy, um, those are outlined here, some of the requirements. But then also, you know, the, the practical, how do I get this up and running and how do I get this started and make this treatment available for my patients? So those are outlined, um, on this slide, uh, as well. And again, that website contains all the resources that are needed, um, to become a REMS, um, certified site for brexanolone therapy. Now it's your turn to practice using the toolkit to figure out which treatment option you should discuss with your patient. So we're going to give you a question and you will use the tool to find that answer. And let's conclude with module three. So let's incorporate shared decision-making into the management of postpartum depression to empower our patients and to optimize their clinical care. Again, we know that postpartum depression often goes undiagnosed, untreated or undertreated. And so um, unfortunately we know that women may hide their symptoms from their clinician. And um, I know that women have come to me and, and I'll say, but your EPDS was zero two weeks ago. Tell me what happened. And, and she's like, oh yeah, I lied on that. I didn't want to say anything. And so, so we know that sometimes we don't get um, uh, moms who feel comfortable discussing their symptoms with their providers. And, and here this study looked at and said almost, almost 21% of new mothers who are experiencing um, postpartum mood disorders such as anxiety and depression did not disclose their symptom to healthcare providers. Um, and even when we identify PPD, it doesn't guarantee that women are treated for it. So we know that between 34 and 60% of women who report significant symptoms of postpartum depression um, to the provider never engage in care. Remember I mentioned back, I know this in our center, our, you know, we have a really close connection with our OBGYNs and, you know, they say, oh, we refer everyone over. And I'm like, where are they? Like they never called, they never asked for an appointment or they, they made an appointment, they didn't show. Um, so it just underscores the need for improved communication between, um, between ourselves or as healthcare providers and our patients to ensure that women with PPD really do receive adequate diagnosis and treatment. Um, there's so many barriers uh, for women um, to uh, seek treatment for postpartum depression. So, you know, it's a complex issue of whether they want to seek treatment or not. And they're trying to weigh the perceived need for treatment against the risks and their perceived risks of treatment, um, the effects of their treatment choice on their child, especially including breastfeeding. We just see um, so much misinformation and lack of education in this area. Um, we also, um, you know, find that there are additional barriers. So obviously accessibility to care, the cost of care, um, time constraints, fear of losing their child to child protective services is, is a real fear. Um, lack of motivation, lack of support. Um, these are all in, in impacting women and their ability to, to get the care they need. And so shared decision-making is a process by which, you know, we as clinicians and patients engage in a dialogue uh, around the available treatment options, um, and especially when there are multiple options to choose from. And so we want the education to include information about PPD, available options, risk and benefits to the, each option, as well as, you know, no treatment at all. So, you know, how does the risk of an antidepressant compare with what if you didn't seek any treatment at all and, and the depression remained? And, and how is that impairing the, the woman and her child and her family? Um, and so it's important to do that risk-benefit alternative analysis so that women have informed consent about their treatment options. Um, we want to assume that, that, that individuals want to be active participants in their care um, and that we want to encourage liberation 
uh, around these options and promote the sharing of information. Um, you know, the shared decision making improves their overall understanding of what options there are. And, um, you know, they can have confident treatment choices that align with their needs and their values. And studies find that women who are experiencing postpartum depression symptoms prefer an active or collaborative role when exploring mental health treatment options. Now, we're going to discuss this a little bit more detail in our practice aid for this module, but I do want to highlight some of the things that we're going to go into detail. So we'll start with seeking your patient's participation, and then we'll proceed to helping your patient explore and compare treatment options. Then we're going to learn to use effective and listening skills to help your patient assess their values and preferences and then reach a decision with your patient. Finally, evaluate your patient's decision. So let's head back to our practice tool to take a deeper dive into some of these issues of shared decision-making. So the first step in the shared decision-making process is to seek your patient's participation. And so you see in the the first bar on top, um, too often treatment decisions are made for patients and without regard for their values, preferences, or goals. Um, we want to communicate that a choice exists and invite our patients to participate in the process. Um, it's important to summarize the health problem and let, let our patients know that there are options to consider. Um, understanding and describing it clearly to patients and openly allows our patients to understand that a decision needs to be made. Um, and then asking our patients to participate with the healthcare team in making that treatment decision, helping her understand that she's been being invited to participate and ask questions and discuss options with you and let her know that her participation is important and valued. Asking if your patient would like to have family members or caregivers participate in the discussion is also important. Now in this lower bar, you can see some of these conversation starters. You can take a look at some of those. And as we go through the different steps, you'll see these conversation starters on the lower bar for each of these steps in shared decision-making. Because then we're going to want to help our patient explore and compare treatment options next. And here, um, again, no single option is clearly superior. We want to use evidence-based decision-making processes and resources to help patients compare the treatment options. We want to assess what the patient already knows and, and where there, there are gaps in their understanding. Um, you know, let's write down a list of options and describe them in plain language. We could point out where there's clear differences in the treatment options, you know, perhaps between psychotherapy and an antidepressant. Um, and clearly communicate the risks and benefits of each of those, of what's known and unknown about the options and what would happen with no treatment. That's a, that's a really important one that often gets forgotten. Then communicate numbers with visual aids, graph charts, something that's really tangible to the patient and summarize by lift, listing the options again. And then the use of teach back techniques can be very valuable to check for patient understanding. So again, you'll see some of these um, conversation starters here that'll help you explore these pros and cons of treatments. And then the next step will be to use effective communication and listening skills to help the patients assess their values and preferences. So here, again, we want the patient to talk about what matters most to her. Ask open-ended questions. Listen actively to your patient using prompts to continue talking. Go on, tell me more. Um, and also, you know, obviously showing empathy and interest um, in the effect that a problem's having on, on your patient's life and validating her feelings, acknowledging the values and preference that matter to her, um, and then agree on what's important to your patient. So here again are some conversation starters um, for this piece of the shared decision-making process. Next is to reach a decision with your patient. So help your patient move towards that decision. Ask if she's ready to make a decision or if there are additional questions. Asking if more um, education via different tools or materials or decision aids would be helpful. And checking if they need more time to consider. 
confirming the, the decision with the patient when she's ready, and then verifying sort of what the next steps are to go forward with that decision, and then always following up. Here are some, in blue, these conversation starters for step four. And then evaluating that decision in step five. Once that decision's been made, then it's important to follow up with the patient to see how she's doing. Uh, remind that, you know, treatments can be changed. You can change, you know, as you're going on this course, um, as you find out what is working well and what's not working well for your patient. And monitor, um, you know, to the extent of which treatment decision is implemented to make sure it's in place because sometimes the treatment just does get lost in the shuffle. Revisit the decision with your patient to determine if other decisions need to be made. And so here you can find some conversation starters for prompting future evaluation. So now it's your turn to practice using this toolkit to review how shared decision-making can help clinicians and patients engage in dialogue around available treatment options for postpartum depression. So we're gonna give you a question and you'll use the tool to find the answer. Thank you again so much for joining us today. I truly hope it helps you help care for women uh, in your practice who may be suffering from postpartum depression. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HYR860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sage Therapeutics and Biogen.